Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you are listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. I believe we can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. There are possibilities for all of us, even you. Not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Welcome to How She Really Does It, a place where inspiration and possibility meet. Susan Reed has an interesting personal journey. She has had careers in advertising, running restaurants, and teaching at the New England's Culinary Institute. And she is now in her fourth career at King Arthur Flower, where she started by testing recipes for the Baker's Companion and has since co-authored the subsequent King Arthur's books while writing and editing The Baking Sheet. Susan is here to talk about how you can learn the no-fail tips to making your favorite holiday treats. Susan, hello and welcome. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So this is just an opportune time for you to come because I'm I'm not a cook, uh, and I I do some baking, but I really don't know how to cook. My listeners kind of know this about me, and um, <laughs> my I have a seventh grade daughter who loves to cook. She's not about being perfect, and um, so we now bake gingerbread houses, and these are huge gingerbread houses that we bake, and we're, I think, in the process of either going to make 10 or 12 houses for her little party. Wow. Yeah, and so... It is, and it was so cool with the picture that we took and the kids that did it, but, Mm -hmm. you know, Susan, I've realized that I am not at my best parenting when I'm in the kitchen. Yeah, there's a lot of tug of war and stress going on because you're the grown up and you're supposed to know how to do everything and all of a sudden you're outside your own area of expertise. So that's tough. Yeah, and and for me, if I'm not in if when I'm in my area of expertise, I can be really calm and relaxed because I feel confident. But in the kitchen, mm-hmm. right, I'm already not confident and then to have to have somebody else in there and then it just triggers my I have to be perfect mindset. So do you have advice for those of us out there that get want, you know, that idea, want that um, vision, they have that holiday vision of baking and connecting with family members, but then have the stress of the holidays, you know, uh, and, and uh, the actual experience during this holiday season? Well, I think people are, you know, they, they always think of the food that they're going to make as an expression of how they feel about people. So they want it to be absolutely perfect. So they all, uh, it's easy to set your expectations in a place that you're almost guaranteed to create stress for yourself because you may or may not be able to hit that mark. So I would advise a couple of things. First of all, start with a recipe that is familiar to you and isn't going to give you any surprises. And if you don't know what that is, um, we have people on the phones. We have a baker's hotline that's 
around all year long at King Arthur Flower. We also have recipes on our website that are guaranteed. Mm-hmm. So if they don't, we've tested them to be really resilient and um, people have good results with them. And if for some reason uh, you don't have a success with the recipe, we'll give you part of your money back for your ingredients. So wow. start with something that is seems reasonable to do. You know, like how hard could that be? And if you have a question, ask it first. Read the whole recipe from front to back. And if you're not sure what happens somewhere along the way in the recipe, call us and ask us. We'll we'll tell you how to do it. Okay. Well, and, and that that's nice to know that there is a resource out there, and that King Arthur has that resource out there for people like me who are going, "Oh my gosh, this is scary," right? Mm. Um, and that we can lean on somebody. I loved how you talked about how people feel that food is an expression of how they feel. So is that something we kind of need to put aside as we're going through this process? I think that, um, the, the impulse to bake for someone is, is usually wonderful and sincere and genuine, but then you have to say, okay, I'd like to do this, but then you have to sort of put that down and say, yourself as you're going through it it's it's already it's just food it's not <laughs> you know i can't carry that that um burden you just that stress has to be set aside this should be something that you enjoy because mm-hmm. if you enjoy doing it the results are going to be better so when we teach things like people get afraid of things like pie crust mm-hmm. and when you're nervous about something you have a tendency to overwork it or you push you rush it or you're trying to squeeze in something you've never done before into like half the time that you really need to get through it. Part of it is homework. Part of it is just breathing. You have to exhale (laughs) and just, you know, relax a little bit because everything will go much easier. Measuring all your ingredients before you start mixing them up is really important. If you're new to this, every chef has what they call mise en place. So you have a recipe in front of you, you measure each of those ingredients and you have it, and you check them off even as you go down the recipe so that you don't forget something. Um, you know how you always mix dry ingredients mm-hmm. beforehand mm-hmm. a lot of the time? I often will teach people, so you measure flour into a container, and then maybe you have to add, like, salt and baking powder and some cinnamon or something like that. One of the smartest things that you can do is add each of those ingredients in a little pile separate from the other one. So you put your salt over here in a corner, put the baking powder in a separate spot, put your cinnamon over there. And that way, if you get interrupted, you can come back and count the little piles mm-hmm. and see where you were in the recipe. Because if you put them all on top of each other and you get interrupted, you may or may not remember what you put in there and what you didn't. Well, exactly. Because when we're at home, there's so much going on, especially with the holidays. Doorbells oh, sure. ringing, phone, ring, phone. Yeah, the dog oh. needs to go out. Somebody skins their knee. You know, there's a million things can happen. Okay. And when you say check off now, because remember, I'm the non-cook. Are you literally mm-hmm. checking on the recipe? When I used to teach at a culinary school, I would have the students put recipes in one of those like plastic sleeves. Mm-hmm. And they would put a piece of masking tape next to the ingredients list. And they would literally check off on that piece of masking tape what they had done and what they had that is a great idea. Oh my goodness. Great tip. Um, because with the, with the gingerbread house, we're borrowing my, one of my good friends, uh, molds 
to make mm-hmm. them. And she has the recipe in a Ziploc bag. So that's just nice because, yeah. you know, when you borrow something of someone's, you don't want to ruin it. And yeah. my kitchen looked like it exploded yesterday. So it was, <laughs> I was always like, oh, I just have to replace the Ziploc bag. But now I there could do go. that with the masking tape and there we go. Yeah. And also, I often would have my students too, if they had a, a cookbook open, like the Baker's Companion will lay flat when you open it. And then I would take a big piece of plastic wrap and mm-hmm. I would just put a piece of plastic wrap over the whole open book. And that way you can read right through the plastic wrap and it won't get your book all beat up. Oh, another good tip. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because on the show I talk a lot about letting go of perfection. So it's always funny that, you know, in the kitchen my perfectionist techniques come up. Um, but when you talk about being nervous and how we have a tendency to overwork it. I mean, that's something my listeners are very, that's a message that my listeners hear quite often in all aspects Mm -hmm. of my interviews that I do. And I love how Mm -hmm. you put that in with the cooking piece too, because, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that, you know, about how my own nervousness can create just difficult results in the kitchen. Yeah. I kind of call it spinning where you, it's just really hard to, it sort of feeds on itself too. That's Mm -hmm. part of the problem. Yeah, I, when we first started out yesterday, there were the the energy and the the anxiety in the kitchen was very high, <laughs> and because I was like, oh, but it has to be perfect. This is baking; it has to be perfect, and we're not even eating any of this stuff. So, part of it doesn't matter for the taste. But as we got I, it, I, go ahead. Yep. Well, I was just thinking, you know, a lot of people think that they can't. You know, baking makes them nervous because there's an exact formula, and they can't, you know. I can, a lot of people will tell me I can cook, but I can't bake because cooking I can improvise and I can get away with it and all that kind of stuff. But baking is really precise and I can't do that. And I finally came up with this analogy that seems to work for me. Baking is a little bit like driving. There are certain rules of the road that you do have to follow. But once you understand what those rules of the road are, you can drive that car anywhere you want it to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in this country, we drive on the right, and in baking, you you know the dry ingredients are usually whisked together, and then the wet are added, and and yes, you you have to measure the right way, just like you have to use your turn signal. Mm-hmm. But once those things are mastered, you can make some substitutions and you can do some changing, but you have to learn to drive first. Okay, that's really good to know. That's really good to know. I understand the dry ingredients and mixing the wet ingredients together. And I love how you have to learn how to dry first. So master that skill set. And then after that, you can go ahead and put in alternatives that may work or test Mm -hmm. it out. I did a radio interview where somebody was asking about deep frying a turkey. And this, of course, the day before Thanksgiving. (gasps) And we asked, have you ever done this before? And the answer, of course, is no. And basically we said, why don't you start with something small like a chicken and work your way up? Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's about practicing, right? It is a little bit, and and you know we get phone calls all the time from people in May who are going to make their first wedding cake ever for two hundred people in a week. (laughs) Okay, no, now is not the time. This question should have been come around about two months ago. So, um, you know, people are they they say they're going to do this, and then they think to themselves, "Oh, geez, what did I commit to?" And then, of course, they start putting it off, and then the cycle begins because they put it off, and then they get more stressed, and they <laughs> they back themselves into a corner. So, um, and none of it is is life or death. None of it is, you know, what's 
the worst that can happen. Something embarrassing? Mm-hmm. No. Embarrassment isn't fatal. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassment will stick with you for quite a while, but usually um, you can come out of it with a pretty good story mm-hmm. in the long run. I like that. Embarrassment is not fatal. Well, you know, it's so interesting because I was getting so wrapped up and it was just all of my own anxiousness of being in the mm-hmm. kitchen. Right. And yeah. so it has nothing mm-hmm. to do with my daughter. And my daughter's like, woohoo, let's get started. Right. And she needs to learn some skill sets about, you know, we mm-hmm. talk about reading through the recipe and stuff and she's getting better. She really, yeah. she actually really is. But, um, what's happened and why I actually like to make, you know, 10 or 12 gingerbread houses is that, we start to get into a system and I like systems. And so mm-hmm. like la- by last night, we we had this pretty good system going of, you know, making the dough and the dough started getting to be better. And then also mm-hmm. just, you know, putting it out into the molds and cooking it. We had a good a good little routine going that was working out really, really well for us. But that first, mm-hmm. that first one, because I was like trying to read the recipe and trying to remember what we did last year and, you know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it was, how did we do this again? Because... In my perfectionist, I also don't like to be productive, right? So it's all my own mind stuff. Get uh, gets in my own way, but um, and so I I actually enjoy making more because we start to get that routine going, and then it's more comfortable. Yes, and as you practice, your skill gets a little bit more. You know, as your skills develop, your confidence develops, and then everything falls into place much more easily. Mm-hmm. And now that you know, because I gave you permission, you can take a cereal box or a cracker box, and that can be your internal form, and you can get out the hot glue gun, and you'll have your square houses very, very shortly. Yes. So for you listeners that are listening to that, Susan and I, before we got on the air, she she gave me permission to use a hot glue gun. <laughs> and this is only if you're not going to eat the gingerbread house, which we're not, mm-hmm. and nor all our guests. But it because that's the tricky part is assembling them and getting that icing, even though it's a pretty good icing, but getting it to stick. And so now I know that we can use a glue gun and cereal boxes to support it. <laughs> the right angles are a big deal, actually. And that's the easiest way I know to give yourself some sort of stand to like make it stay in place quickly. And, well, and you know, those things really ha- help that, that permission that it doesn't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Because um, we, I broke one of the, I don't remember, one of the walls or something last night. And my daughter goes, Mom, remember, we, we don't want to get rid of it. We can always just use the icing to glue it back together. Right. Because mm-hmm. in the end, it's not going to matter. It's going to be all filled with icing anyways. And mm-hmm. um, and that was advice that my friend had given us last year because I was going to chuck some of the broken pieces. And she's like, are you kidding me? Do you know how much work that is to make that? She goes, no, you can save it and use it, you know, by by just gluing it, the two pieces together. And I was like, wow, because, again, it was back to that. Oh, it has to. You know, I look at I guess what happens to me and maybe with other people and please tell me where I'm wrong, Susan, is we look at the end product of professionals like you, master chefs like you, and go, okay, well, we need to be that, not realizing the process it took to get you to where you're at and also maybe the tricks that you use to make it look a certain way. Well, and gingerbread houses are wonderful because there's no reason why, say if you have a wall that has a crack in it and you glue it back together, why can't you turn that into a stone wall? Oh, no one would ever see it. Yeah. Or you could make it like a brick wall made out of um, like candies. Just make it look like bricks. Or you can make it into a collaborative with uh, like even red licorice or something like that. You could 
as long as there are frosted mini wheats, you're all good to go. <laughs> oh, frosted mini wheats are good to put on gingerbread houses. Yeah, they make a really nice roof. I'm gonna write that tip down. Okay. <laughs> you know the the thing I'm thinking of right now, Susan, is that it's like, well, especially if you're not going to eat it, right? Because, um, mm -hmm. but but it can be like the gingerbread homes, for instance. It can be it's like a canvas. Right. If, oh, you, yeah. if you don't like the painting, you can just paint over it a different color or a different drawing. And so that's kind of what mm -hmm. you're saying with these gingerbread houses, that it's like a canvas. It is. It totally is. And once you've got a wall completely covered up, I mean, you can do if you have perfect walls, you can just accent some of the details if you want to with your royal icing and a little bit of smaller candies. But, you know, those candies that look like they always sell them by the ocean that look like rocks or pebbles. Mm hmm. Those things are great around the base of your house. Uh, yeah, that's where you could turn it into a stone wall if you had to. Oh, these are great ideas. I'm going to add all this stuff to our uh, Evite, <laughs> what stuff to bring. Because <laughs> some of the stuff people just have in their pantries, just sitting there like frosted oh. mini wheats, you know? How many people oh, have sure. that? Oh, um, pretzels are really good, too. <coughs> all right. So... For those that aren't interested in the, my my gingerbread making habits, um, what do you think is important for the holiday baking season? Because right now we're kind of in the height of that. And what do you what do you see as being important at this time of the year? Well, I we have a big family, so there are certain things over time that I've become sort of known for. That if I don't show up with, there will be some serious pouting. So there are cookies that I make every year. Um, working in advance is always as more important than you know because you want to spend time with the people. I mean, the food is nice that it's there, but people for families, you know, you get together to spend time with each other, not to. I would say that the food should be um, an enhancement to that and not a substitute. Mm -hmm. So, um, I always do some decorated cookies because I think it's really fun to do. And I send care packages to people that are far away. And I always do a fair amount of bar cookies and things that I know that will ship well. And I have often done things like um, I've made some bread. We have a, a, a no-fuss focaccia on our website. So I've mixed up all the ingredients for that. It's a very easy recipe to do. You just add basically add water um, and cheese if you're getting excited about it. So I've printed the recipe from the website, measured out all the ingredients, put them in a bag, put the two, two together and put them in people's Christmas stockings just so I could get them to try something that I knew would be really easy. Oh, I like that. It's like those jars that you get with the cookie mix all put together. Yeah, without the jar fuss. Yeah. Because then what do you do with the jar? <laughs> Unless you want to recycle it, you have to re-gift it to somebody else in the jar. But the bag, that's, that's a really – because that has um... – I've noticed our grocery store has has starting to sell those jars of the mix all together, um, mm -hmm. but uh, so I guess that's a new thing for this year. But um, yeah, the bags are a great way to go, and it's a good way to mail or stick in a stocking and um, yep. and to give to people. And then you just wanted to use it because it's all there. I mean, you don't have to go searching for ingredients or measuring things out. Yep, kind of eliminates excuses like for people like me, huh? <laughs> Well, the, when I did this, I gave, I mixed up recipes for everybody, and then I had two or three more that I made that day and fed to them. And I said, okay, that bag in your stocking, this is what it tastes like, warm out of the oven. So I thought if that didn't get them, then nothing would. 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so for you, well, I mean, you're a master chef and this is obviously something you like to do. Um, but do you ever get, cause you're doing it in the workplace. Do you get tired of doing it at home? Um, no, not really. I kind of cook like I breathe. <laughs> it's, uh, it's something that is, I spent all day cooking yesterday because I have a busy week coming up this week. So I made dinner for five days. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I have a spare refrigerator in the garage. And when I'm in project mode, at least I have, I have a place to put it all. And, um, I, I, it's hard for me to describe. It's something that takes me less time than other people because I'm, done more of it mm-hmm. so um i when i was working on about the seventh thing that i made yesterday i thought most people will not go this far <laughs> <laughs> most people would not make you know uh, a batch of turkey soup a batch of pea soup and three casseroles and a loaf of bread and you know they would stop somewhere earlier than this mm-hmm. but i i wanted to have dinner set up so that I didn't have to think about it for the week. So I did. Well, and that's nice to see that somebody who's doing their work and seems to love what they do, but is also willing to do it at home instead of being, you know, like yeah. the cobbler's children have no shoes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, there's only, we don't really, I live in Vermont, so the takeout options are a little bit more limited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, there's, after the third time of Chinese in a couple of weeks, you're like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> trying to make some dinner. <laughs> now, I have a question for you because I've been really searching about this and this just so this popped into my head is containers, like for storing flour. Do you have any mm. recommendations that you like you personally like? I actually, we just redid the test kitchen here at King Arthur Flour, and um, my station has got two square bins, and we obviously go through 25 pounds in no time. Mm-hmm. So I have um, some really big size bins, but I bought a couple of pet five-gallon square pet food containers, mm-hmm. one for flour and one for sugar, and we had a drawer that was specifically made. So I pull out the drawer and the two containers are there, and I can scoop and measure right out of them. But for people who use what I would call normal amounts, um, something that is got rigid sides and a fairly open top because you want to be able to put a scoop in the flour that you can just leave in the bin, and you want to stir fluff up. I have to, it's hard to say this, fluff up the flour uh, with your scoop so that you put some more air into it and then sprinkle it into a measuring cup and then sweep off the extra from the top. And measuring your flour that way is going to give you much better results because a lot of times people don't think about it. They just sort of dig into a bag of flour and when you do that, it gets all packed down in the cup and you'll have much drier, more crumbly results if you do it that way. I never knew that. So, so tell us, because that's an important tip to know. So when you're scooping it up, kind of fluff it up at first and then put it into the scooper? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to take like a dry measuring cup that has mm-hmm. a level top. You want to take a, you know, a big spoon will do the job. So you want to stir up the flour in whatever container it's in and put your measuring cup over that bin and just sprinkle the flour into that measuring cup until it's sort of mounded over the top. And then just take a knife or a bowl scraper or, or something straight edge and just sweep off the extra. And when you do that, you'll have your cup of flour should weigh about four and a quarter ounces. But if you're just digging into that bag and, you know, having to bang on the back of the cup to get the flour back out, you can have 25 to 30% too much flour in your recipe. 
So wow. that's where things kind of get dry. Okay, now that makes sense. Okay, because I've always thought you wanted to pack it in as much as you could and level it off, but I... No, no, no. Wow. Well, if you read, um, if you're reading a baking book, and if it's uh, a baking book that's any, uh, a good baking book, they will usually tell you in the front of the book how they're measuring their flour. In fact, they should give you a weight for how much that flour is in one cup. And different authors use different amounts, but... um, we're pretty, we use four and a quarter ounces. Some authors will use four and a half. Very rarely will you see more than that. And if it is, that's, that's on the high side. Well, I'm planning on be- reading the King Arthur Flower Baker's Companion because apparently there's more that I need to learn. So, <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, I was hired to test the recipes for this book. And King Arthur's thing about writing recipes i mean we're over 220 years old this company but so we have a lot of baking knowledge that's crammed into this but we've always taken the point of view that we're, we we want to be sort of like your grandma or your best friend or your companion in the kitchen so mm-hmm. we, we take a lot of time and energy to explain how and why so that you're not confused about what's going on well, no, no, I, th- I think, you know, I'm 40 years old and that's the first time I've ever heard about, you know, the, the, the actual density of mm-hmm. um, the flour in the cup. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that explains some information to me about when I've been baking and the different consistencies of the, whatever I'm making is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what about, so when we're talking about pl- containers, is it better to mm-hmm. go glass or plastic? Well, it, it depends on um, you want to be able to handle it securely and you don't, you know, flour is pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. So if you have the counter space to leave it, leave the flour on your counter, then glass is fine. Um, plastic, as long as it's food grade plastic and doesn't pick up any odors, that's fine too. Um, and it just depends on if it's something that's going to be in a cupboard that you're going to be taking out all the time. Mm-hmm. Um Plastic might be better because it's not as heavy. A five-pound bag of flour is one of the smallest sizes that you can get. So I just don't want people to have um, situations where they're not baking because it's too heavy for them to move their flour around. So you want to make sure it's food-grade plastic? Yes. Okay. And that's an important thing. And then um, what about – because I noticed some recipes ask for sifting a flour – is that mm-hmm. still necessary? It's flour sifting. A lot of things that were written in recipes from once upon a time, many, many, mm-hmm. many years ago, have carried over. Flour is all sifted at the mill now. Um, it depends on what the recipe is. If you're making something like uh, a sponge cake or an angel food cake, a lot of the time a recipe will ra- call for, say, two cups of sifted flour. And if it's written with the adjective sifted in front of flour, what you should do is sift into your measuring cup and then level it off. But if it's flour, comma, sifted, you measure it first, and then you either sift it or what I generally do when I'm writing recipes is I'll have you whisk together the dry ingredients. So I'll measure the flour and everything else into a, into a bowl, and then I'll just take literally a hand whisk, and I'll whisk it around just to combine it. Most of the time, you don't have to bother with a sifter for things like that, unless it's a very light cake. 
we sifted all the flour last year for our gingerbread houses. <laughs> We're not doing it this year because my friend told me she didn't ever do it after we, you yeah. know, but that was a lot of flour. <laughs> if you're if you're making, say, like a chocolate cake, that, and you know how cocoa powder sometimes gets lumps in it, uh-huh. a lot of the time what I'll do is I'll, you know, those hand strainers that you can just, you know, they're 99 cents at the convenience store or the variety store. I just put that sifter over my measuring bowl and I measure the flour and the sugar and the cocoa and the baking powder and the salt into that sifter. And then I take a whisk and I stir it down through the sifter, uh-huh. which does two things. It combines everything and it gets rid of any lumps. Okay. It's a lot quicker and easier than anything else. Than those hands squishy. <laughs> yeah. And then if you're, especially if you're doing something with cocoa, then the thing is dirty and you got to wash it and then it's just a real big pain. Okay. And this thing can go right in the dishwasher. Right. And then, Susan, how important is it to, because I noticed on your website, on the King Arthur Flower website, there's different types of flour. Yes. How important is I it, because I'm an all-purpose kind of gal. Mm-hmm. Which is a great place to stay, because all-purpose is exactly that. You can get quality results out of it for all different kinds of things. Um, when you get people who are into bread baking, and uh, a lot of people like to have like an entire wardrobe of flour. Or if you want to start baking with some whole grains, then that is probably another reason to have a different kind of flour in your house. Um, and by the way, if it is a whole grain flour, it should be stored in the freezer. And it should be bought in small amounts. Why is that? The, because the whole grain has both the bran and the germ. And the germ in the grain can go rancid and oxidize. So a lot of times... And freezing it will slow down that process. So it will stay fresher longer if you keep it in the freezer. Okay. And then what about cake flour? Because my daughter makes a lot of cakes. Um, mm-hmm. And how important is it to have cake flour versus all-purpose? Most of the time, in my experience, you the texture between the two flours is going to be a little bit different. Uh, And I guess it sort of depends. You can get a good cake from all-purpose flour, and that is mostly what I use for cakes. But if you're making what's called a high-ratio cake, something that has a lot of fat and a lot of sugar in it, cake flour is bleached, and it is that bleaching just damages the starch that's in the flour. And the result is that you can make a cake batter that has more sugar and fat in it than otherwise. So... um, it depends on the recipe. Um, I most of the time, if you're making a, like a white, very dense cake, a high ratio cake, um, which means that the fat and the sugar are at a pretty high percentage of the batter, then cake flour is important. But and why is that again? I didn't quite understand. When cake flour is a lower protein flour, so it mm-hmm. makes a more tender cake, and Less protein means more starch. When cake, most cake flours are bleached, and the bleaching process damages the starch so that the batter that's made with cake flour can have more sugar and more fat in it. Oh, okay. Okay. So that, that's good information to know. And um, how long do you recommend, like, how long is flour good for? Now that you talked about wheat flour, you want to mm-hmm. buy in small amounts and keep it in the freezer. Mm-hmm. How long can you keep flour for? Well, if it's a white flour, which has the, the germs sifted out of it, as long as it's stored in a cool, dry place and doesn't 
have any off smells to it, as long as it's not musty or hasn't picked up any odors from anything around it, it's fine. You can keep it almost indefinitely. Okay. So so the the all-purpose flour, we're good to go if we, we store yeah, it and we it, buy a bunch I've, right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's usually on sale around the holidays. Yeah. Well, my daughter likes to, she she likes to bake quite a bit, and mm-hmm. um, so we tend to go and buy those twenty five pound bags of flour. There you go. Yeah. Yep. So, because when we do stuff, we kind of do do it in mass, anyways. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So we don't have to be perfect. Embarrassments <laughs> are not. What did you say? Embarrassments fatal. aren't fatal. <laughs> don't be nervous because it's going to show up in your food. <laughs> Call and, us if you're scared. And, oh, yes. And we can always reach out, right? We can reach That's out to right. the King Arthur hotline. Yes. Well, thank you so much. This was really good, insightful information for my listeners. So I really appreciate your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I feel like I made a new friend. <laughs> well, Susan, have a great holiday. And um, this too. is probably a busy week for you going into the holidays. So, Yeah, I'm actually writing the catalog for spring. <laughs> <laughs> We're all, we do a lot of seasonal time travel at the moment. Okay. So, because uh, um, the, the, the King Arthur books are just not just for baking. There's I see recipes. I see there's all kinds of stuff, breads, pizzas. Oh, yeah. All yeah kinds you can of make stuff. a lot of meals out of some of these books. All right. Well, Susan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Okay. Have a great holiday and a good near year. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us at How She Really Does It. Each week, I try to bring inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment for you. Each show has a takeaway, something you can implement to take those steps forward in your own journey. I'd love to hear from you. You can connect with me at my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter to get insider information as well as each podcast delivered directly into your inbox. Have a great day, and I'm smiling big for you. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming, she is drifting.